Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. I am here today with Jamie York. Welcome Jamie, how are you? Doing okay, thanks for having me Mark. Absolutely. So today I wanted to have you on to talk a little bit about uh, your your company. You're, you have a very unique approach to learning and uh, to teaching. Uh, you've had a great deal of success uh, with an online course. And what I want to do is get a little bit of your feelings on what the state of education is like today in, in the modern sense in 2023. So a lot of parents that are out there that are sending their kids to school and uh, they're having trouble in the area that you happen to specialize in, which is mathematics. I know your academy does more, but uh, one of the great things that you came up with was uh, this this book, uh, Making Math Meaningful. And I want to dig a little bit deeper into this. How did you get into mathematics as a, as a general topic of teaching? Right. Well, you've mentioned a few things there that gets my mind going <laughs> quite a bit. But uh, I have a background uh, as a computer programmer, uh, two degrees in computer science. And I was going down that road uh, to be a software engineer, a computer programmer. And it was just before I graduated that I really kind of fell in love with teaching. I was tutoring as, you know, somebody was in my earlier tw early 20s. I was tutoring a student um, in math, and I really enjoyed it. Met some interesting people that were teachers themselves, and I decided, yeah, this is this is what I'd like to do. This is where I'd like to dedicate my life. Um, and, and I'd say that... Um, my, my first experience with that, even though it was fairly mainstream, I was teaching in a boarding school and it was very positive in many ways. Um, I had some sort of life experiences and so forth, uh, traveling around the world, et cetera, where I realized I was looking for uh, an educational system that really had a philosophy behind it, meaningfulness behind it, really. And, and I'd really, I, I had developed this feeling over you know, many, many years. In fact, I have this memory of sitting in, <laughs> I'll share this story if that's okay. Sitting yeah, in, um, it was my first day of ninth grade and uh, I was in a large public school, you know, in terms of middle school, my experience, I had some very good teachers, some teachers that were perhaps weren't that great. Um, and I had worked, you know, for a middle school student, I'd worked fairly hard, done all my homework, really made sure that I had good grades, that whole thing. And here I am the first day of ninth grade sitting in the auditorium of this big public school. You could probably imagine this. I can imagine that they probably had to sit in alphabetical order. And so I mentioned that because I was like at the back at the end because my last name's York and, you know, who knows who I was sitting next to. It probably was definitely not my friends. Um, and the principal was addressing the class, the new ninth grade students. And, you know, he was intending to motivate us, inspire us in some way. And I still remember this. And this is a very long time ago, right? Um, you know, 45 years ago or so. And I was um, sitting there listening to this guy, taking it all in. I mean, the first day of ninth grade is a big deal for, for any kid, really. You know, this is a fair bit of apprehension and so forth. You know, how is this going to be? I was really small, kind of intimidated by, you know, I hadn't had my growth spurt at all yet. So I was probably about 5'2". Uh, I remember having to pry this, uh, this, I don't know, they were probably in 12th grade. Who knows? Maybe not. I had to pry this couple off my locker in between classes because they were like making out. <laughs> it, was, it was very uncomfortable. But anyway, so <laughs> getting off on a tangent here, forgive me. But, you know, so here I am in the auditorium and this principal to motivate us said, he said, I want you to look to your left and look at your right. And so I did that. I looked to the person on my left and my right and I just had this vague idea that these were two students who were not very serious about their studies or anything like that. And he said these words, he said, I just want you to know that you are all equal now. You are all equal. 
and what he was trying to do, I think, was to motivate those students who had never been motivated before. And he was basically saying, now you have a fresh start. You know, you goofed off. You didn't do anything in middle school. Well, now is high school. And now you have a fresh start. And now you can, you're all equals. Now you can make something of yourself. I, I realize now that's what he was trying to do. But for me, it was a horrifying experience. Because I just thought, what? I'm equal to these clowns on either side of me. This is this cannot be good. I just worked really hard in middle school, and now we're all equal. And then the more and more I thought of it, I, I suddenly realized, you know what? He's right. Nobody could care less what my grades were in middle school. And it didn't take long where my mind, I don't even know if I heard anything else that he said after that. My mind started spinning, and I'm like, what's going to happen? You know, four years from now, I'm going to be sitting in some university, and they're going to say the same thing. Essentially, we don't care what you did in high school. It doesn't matter. You're all equal now. And then sometime after that, I'm going to be sitting, I guess, in some corporate job or something like that. And, you know, they're not going to care what I did in university anymore. And so I just, at that point, I just started to really question, well, what is the point of education? Why am I doing this? And, and for me, I had been, you know, sucked into this whole existence of, well, it's the point is seemingly it's a competition it's it's all about getting ahead so that you can do better and have a better gpa and better grades and you play that whole game and that game has by the way in the you know since that time 45 years ago has become a lot more intense a lot more intense and you know you i went back and forth Go do you ahead. think this do you think the stakes have gotten bigger now than they were before you know i'm not convinced the stakes are bigger now. We're certainly, however, given that impression, right? And and I think there is absolutely, I mean, you know, the, the research on this is very clear. There is absolutely more anxiety uh, now than there has been even just in the last 10, 15 years. The, the level of anxiety of our students, for instance, going to university, and I think especially amongst those students that you know, consider themselves to be good students and that are working really hard. The level of anxiety is higher. I would, I don't know if there have been studies about this, but I would not say that the level of interest and engagement in learning has increased. And so it's, but, you know, it was in that moment that I started to really question, what is the point of education? I have to say, you know, me personally, I did go back and forth. You know, I'm, I'm kind of a competitive individual myself. You know, I was good at playing that game. Uh, you know, walking in, taking a test and getting good grades and that whole thing. And I did play that game. You know, I had that moment in ninth grade where I'm like, why am I doing this? And then shortly after that, I forgot about it and jumped back in the treadmill and then continued to do it. And I, I basically remained on that treadmill at times questioning things again, you know, all the way through university. I went to a fairly competitive um, engineering school and, you know, was good at playing the game. But then in the end, after, uh, you know, being in my 20s and so forth and having taught for a couple of years and, and I started to question it again, what am I doing with these students? What is the purpose of this? And, you know, I took some time off and, and you know, in my mid-20s to travel around the world and, and which even, you know, made me question it more and came back and I just thought to myself, you know, there's got to be some sort of educational system out there that is really has a more philosophical basis. It's doing more than just training students to, you know, compete on this race on a treadmill, apparently. And, and so that's that really shifted. And, and, you know, I became a Waldorf educator at that point. I'm not sure how, at this point in my career, how important it is uh, to be a Waldorf educator. For me, it was just, again, this search for meaningful education. And I like this word, meaningful. Yeah, um, let me Waldorf back fetch a second. Give me a second yeah. to backtrack with you. And were you always good at math? Were you aware? I mean, you're clearly a self-aware person. Even in ninth grade, when this principle came out and, and hit you with this, you you had the wherewithal to look within yourself and say, "Well, yeah, maybe he has a point." So obviously, you were a thinker. Was math easy for you? Yeah, I'd say it was easy for me, um, and. You know, yes, I am a thinker, and that, of course, especially for, you know, a, a young adolescent, that can be a real curse. Uh, <laughs> just overthinking everything. And, you know, I went through, I wouldn't say that I was, um, that I had 
any sort of serious emotional, mental health issues at all, you know, but I, I definitely uh, was probably on the, you know, towards the spectrum of, I wouldn't say depression. I was never depressed, but I was, you know, there were times where I was just not that excited about life and so forth. And, and so, you know, as I said, my educational system, I just played this game. I did the homework. I did what I was expected and I got good grades and so forth. And yeah, it was pretty easy for me. I also remember being in, you know, in high school and thinking pretty quickly that, you know, this homework is completely pointless for me. It doesn't do me any good whatsoever. I don't need to, you know, I was one of those kids that could sit in class, take it all in and really not need to practice the skills stuff very much. And, and, and I, I really did come to think that homework was just busy work. And clearly the only reason why I was doing any homework was because of the negative, negative repercussions. If I didn't do it, you know, your homework grade would go down and, you know, I got to the point even, I think it was in my senior year with um, AP Calculus, I just didn't even bother to do the homework. It was such a waste. And, you know, it had a negative effect on my grade. I think 10% of my grade was homework. And so I was starting at an A minus. So I pretty much just got A minuses instead of whatever else I would have gotten. Um, and it, work it just in the seemed system. Like, yeah, it seemed like busy work. And that's what I did. You know, I worked the system and it wasn't until I really, and, and I can say this, it wasn't until I got my first job teaching in a Waldorf school when I was, I think, 31 years old, where suddenly I really started to ask, well, not only what is the purpose of education, but what is, what are the best topics that I could bring to my students to really inspire them? You know, so that it could be, you know, from a Waldorf perspective is what can I bring to these students so that it will have the best developmental effect upon them, given where they are at that, at, where they are at this stage in their own personal development. And, and then I started to look at through that lens, what curriculum topics, what, what are the things that I can bring to my students that would be the most beneficial in that regard. And, and so that was an interesting process as well to kind of, not only question the point of education, but what's the point of this particular topic and what are the best topics that I could bring into the classroom to have that sort of positive effect. And then I started to ask, well, why, why have I, I started to realize, why did I lose my love of learning? Because naturally I have a, a, I'm a very curious person. I ask a lot of questions, you know, ever since I was a small child, um, I question pretty much everything. And that's just kind of, you know, my, being and hold I on a second, hold, Jamie. Hold on, so let's backtrack a second. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but let when when did that catharsis? When did that awareness come to you that hey, I really do love learning? And somehow between X age and X age, it was lost to me. Obviously, you recovered it in the best possible way, but there was clearly a path where the grind of learning got to you. And then your own introspection about the grind got to you. But at one point, you know, you saw something in the world that said, uh, wow, there, you became a teacher. I mean, you got off this treadmill that you were on all the way through. You went all the way to all the way through school, two degrees in computer science. And yet somehow you gravitated towards teaching. Was that a form of learning for you? Or was How did that happen? Well, I think that I think what got me away from, you know, you say the treadmill, you can also think of it as the flow of a river and I'm kind of paddling down the river with everyone else. And I'm just doing, going with the flow and doing what was kind of expected. And it was certainly expected, you know, certainly with my background to focus on what you're good at. Right. And for me, that was math and science and engineering school was a natural fit. It's like, do what you're good at. And then, you know, certainly computer science and computer programming was something that was a natural fit to me that I was quite good at. However, I, I didn't bring me the joy that I was really needing. And I saw that. I also saw, you know, ironically enough, I saw that I didn't want to be glued to the computer all the time. Of course, now I have a job that where I am on the computer, but it's very different. I mean, for those of you who have done any computer programming, you know, I'm good at that, but I can disappear into that world in a way that's not really healthy for me. And I saw that. And so I wanted to be in a more, you know, interactive environment where I have more of the human connection. But 
you know, you were asking, when did I lose that learning, that natural curiosity and love of learning? You know, young children have that quite naturally. And I just think slowly over time, the system does sort of turn them off to learning, unfortunately. Uh, and young children don't aren't really generally aware of that happening, for sure not. But I think grades and that sort of, you know, that focus on competition, GPA and all that, it became more and more intense as the years went on. And, and as the, the game became more and more intense, the competition became more and more intense, you kind of lose focus of it. And, you know, I did lose that love of learning. What I realized was that, you know, by the time I finally came to a Waldorf school and I started to reawaken that love of learning that I had, and I found myself for the first time in a long time sitting down and exploring in math, doing what math mathematicians really do. You know, you start with a question, you explore something, oh, look what I discovered. And and I came to this realization that the, my formal, my, I came to this realization that my formal education had really drained me of my love of learning. You know, hmm. or at least it had gone to sleep and it really became reawakened. And, it, and it's, and that's what I see. I see that, you know, this emphasis now, of course, on standardized testing and all of this and more and more emphasis on homework and kids, you know, I, you know, I didn't do that much homework in high school and graduated near the top of my class. I don't think that's possible anymore. You know, for most kids, and certainly in a big public school, the amount of homework they get can be quite soul crushing, which is very yeah, concerning to me. Absolutely. I mean, there's a belief that if a child does well in their grades, and they're getting these A's, and that somehow it's too easy for them, that that has a detrimental side to it. So I think this busy work fills it up by creating a, a, a culture of uh, not having idle hands in a way. And I think it doesn't give people, now you've mentioned Waldorf education several times now, and I know what that is, and we'll talk about that a little bit more uh, in a moment. But one of the things I liked about a Waldorf education is giving uh, the idea that enters into a student a moment to breathe. And if you're always busy, you don't have a chance to let those things marinate, to think. Now, I see that you have a very philosophical approach to life, you know, and just in the words that you're choosing, the way that you're coming across. Now, do you think that replacing homework with, you know, that busy work with something more meaningful, what is it that you would replace? What do you, what do you give a child in place of homework that helps them move forward and sustains that love of learning? Yeah. I mean, you just said a lot right there and, and that's, you know, certainly very important. I think it depends upon the age of the child. You know, for obviously young children, they really need some significant downtime, some unstructured downtime where they can really play and, and, and really live into their imagination. I think that that's so important. And, and I think things are too structured oftentimes with, with young children. Um, but I do think that we can get to a stage. I mean, if I fast forward to high school, I can think of my own son who it was good for him to be busy. But there's a difference in what kind of busy are we talking about, right? And I do think there's something to be said, or at least it was for, I can speak on, you know, my experience as a parent with my son, that if he had a lot of idle time getting back from school, this was not good, right? So it's, it's he, we wanted him to be busy. He liked to be busy. It was good for him to be busy, but there's a, there's a healthy busy and there's an unhealthy busy, right? If you're just being busy, just doing way too much busy work and head work and, and, and all of that, that's not a very balanced life. Whereas if you're balancing it with, you know, um, with things that are going to help you be more healthy as a human being. So there's a certain amount of social activity during the day where you're doing something perhaps with friends or family or something like that. And there's, there's some physical activity, you know, it could be that you're going for a hike or it could be that you're involved in a sport. And, and, and so there's that physical aspect of doing things. And then there's an artistic part uh, for both of my children, I would argue, and they both, you know, are doing very well now and they're well into their 20s as adults. And they went to, you know, what would be considered by most people 
um, very respectable universities and did very well there. Um, but for them, um, for them, it was important to do uh, the music because I think the music is what has really helped to shape them a lot as as in their adult life and as university students. It helped to give them discipline. Um, and, and it helped to give purpose and focus to, to what they were doing. So that balance of having some intellectual studies that you're doing, and hopefully homework isn't just busy work. I've come to believe that skills work doesn't belong at home. You know, if, we're, if I'm going to give math homework, for instance, it should be thinking work. Oh, how do you think you could do this one thing? It should be something that really has some depth to it that's hopefully inspirational to the students and it makes them curious as opposed to, you know, skills work can really be done in a school setting more so. Um, but to have yeah, that, I see, I see that, you know, to have I, that I intellectual see. work where we're challenging their thinking and then to have, you know, the, the music practice and it doesn't have to be music, but to music or drama or art and then the physical aspect to have that kind of busy life, I think is really, really helpful, especially for many students who are, uh, you know, in the throes of adolescence, it can help guide them through that. This is a this is a wonderful view to to have an understanding that you know downtime doesn't necessarily mean unproductive time. It definitely can have a, a productive value to it. But what tends to be categorized as productivity almost always has this harsh face to it. In fact, the yeah. way that the arts have been stripped away from school is, uh, well, I, you know, it's a bit of a problem, I think, that, that children, I've always believed, especially with my children, that range was important. Of course, you need to be able to do what you're talking about, the skill work, but you must have a range to the things that you do. So yeah. this level of interest, the other thing that Waldorf education does is it, it really does touch upon a broad range of, well, it's trying to create Renaissance children you know, the way that people in antiquity almost looked at what a good life was, what a fulfilling life was. Do you think that there's a spiritual fulfillment in learning math? Yeah, absolutely. That's such a strange question. <laughs> you know, is there a spiritual aspect to mathematics? Most people would say, well, where would you come up with that idea? I mean, I have a story that I tell about that, actually, that it was, uh, I had just been hired at this school this Waldorf school and you know I walked into to eighth grade and the teacher was a very very charismatic inspirational teacher for this group of eighth grade students that um, she had really done an amazing job with them and and I walked into that classroom for the first time a bit nervous I think 30 students were in the class and she runs up to me and, and is very exuberant and jumps up gives me a hug and says Jamie I'm so glad you're here because I hate math. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then she said, but I know this. I know this. I know that math is where, math is where the students become most connected to the spiritual world. I mean, you could say that in different words, but I thought that was the weirdest thing I'd ever heard. It's like, what? I never thought of that, certainly in that way, because normally you think of, you know, math is something that can be done by a robot, which to a large degree, the kind of math that we give our students could be done by a robot. You know, it's very mechanical. Just follow the steps and you're good, right? But I mean, true mathematics, if it's done, and if it's done in the right way, if students are allowed to experience the wonders of mathematics, it should be a very, very creative subject. Not, and it's not creative, is it? When, when we're just, when the teacher just tells the students what to do and they're just, you know, going through those same steps that they were taught. And those sort of skills-oriented oriented things are, I mean, they're important, and learning math skills are important, but it's equally important, arguably perhaps more so, that they experience real math. And real math is a creative process, right? And, and so when you're in that creative space, as it is with art, as it can be with any creative endeavor, you're, you're connecting to something more. And, you know, again, it depends on what your, your own spiritual philosophical outlook could be. But for me, it's, yeah, you're connecting to spirit. There's something there. You're, you're opening up this, this vessel. You're opening up this possibility of a new idea. And that's a highly creative process. And, yeah, I do think in that regard, as is music and poetry and other creative endeavors can also be, 
spiritual in that regard. You're connecting to spirit. And this is what, this is human. This is what makes math or any creative subject really, this is what makes us human beings is this possibility of connecting with spirit and doing something creative. Yeah, when, I'm, I'm going to go back a second because you, you were talking about, you know, your own loss of, uh, you know, just desire to, the love of learning. We call it so many different things, but the reality is it's curiosity, right? You're curious about something. Someone has an answer and the answer amazes you. It astonishes you. And then that astonishment it forms into a, a, a tiny bit of inspiration. That now you seek more. You seek more of that idea. The idea, the knowledge uh, becomes the hit. The curiosity becomes the vehicle that brings it to you. And this is where I consider that intersection between learning and spirituality is that you, it almost has to have a... It, you have to give a student a reason to ask a question. And the question, the answer to that question has to be satisfying enough to want them to delve deeper into it. And I, there tends to be a, a backwards approach to that currently, but there always was that approach at antiquity. And, and definitely, you know, I'm, I grew up in the seventies. They were experimenting with new math systems and teaching things. And personally for myself, I had a, I had a major problem with numbers. I would transpose numbers once I got, you know, three or four of them in a row. And I always got math problems wrong. So I thought, I don't know math. And, and that collapsed inside of me. And it wasn't until I became an adult that I realized, oh, I, all I really did, I, had a, I didn't have a good way of looking at math. And ultimately, you know, I'm a computer programmer just like you. So you would imagine that my math skills aren't by any stretch of the imagination weak, but what they were definitely was undernourished. Yeah, you've, that, that's, it, I completely agree with all of that, and it's sad. I mean, it, you know, you're you have you've got one story. I can, you know, you run into just about anybody as an adult, and you know, the vast majority of people—not everyone, but the vast majority of people—have math horror stories to tell you about what happened to them when they were in the classroom, and in many cases, you know, and it wasn't that they had a bad teacher with a nasty intent or anything like that. That would be very rare. But they were somehow, the system, if you will, led them to this conclusion that I'm bad at math. I'm just not good at this, which is unfortunate, right? Because, you know, there, there are these things that, you know, very, I could talk about this at length, these myths of math. But one of these myths of math, if we're given this impression that if we make many mistakes right, then, well, we're not good at math, right? If we're, if we're not fast, we're not good at math. If we can't remember everything we were told from last year, we're not good at math, et cetera. But the reality is, again, going back to this idea that, you know, I believe one of the most important things about teaching math is, is we're, we're really imbuing a sense in the student of what it means to be a human being. This is one of the aspects of what it means to be a human being is this ability to think mathematically, this ability to think creatively. And, and oftentimes the way that things are taught, I mean, it's understandable. You know, if we're going to develop a standardized curriculum and test the students with these certain skills, you know, we can see reasons why that it's become so skills focused. And yet, yeah, yeah. That, that what you were mentioning, the word that I, I think you were, or where my mind was going as you were speaking was this idea of inspiring students. You, you mentioned this idea of awakening up a sense of awe and wonder. I mean, it's so much easier to teach a group of you know, fifth grade students how to do long division and then get, get them to practice that. I mean, that's a pretty clear path that any teacher can go in the classroom and do. But, you know, the yeah. art of teaching is being able to to, okay, you do have to teach long division, but how can we awaken this sense of awe and wonder? That's the art of teaching, and that's quite a challenge to do, and yet it's so incredibly important. Uh, because, again, that's part of this thing about being a human being, is this sense of looking into the world with awe and wonder. And I have to say, you know, this is one of my concerns about the world in general today, and, you know, this is probably going to make me seem like an old guy, 
<laughs> it does seem that these new, you know, these young the youth today has become very cynical, but I think it is true. I think there's more cynicism today than what was, uh, you know, not that there wasn't any cynicism in the past, but, you know, and, and why do we have such cynicism today? Why do we have such a negative view of the world and the state of the world and the human being? We have such a negative, uh, we, the message is also we're giving to children is a very unfortunate message for young children, adolescents and young children to have to cope with is, is human beings are, are terrible and mean and, you know, all these sort of things. And yet, what is the, what is the antidote to that? It is, it is to actually awaken a sense of on wonder. So they look at things and they say, wow, this is amazing. Mathematics is incredible. The world is amazing. The world is beautiful. I mean, these are the sort of things we want to instill in young children and to really help teenagers to get through. I mean, who, who would want to be a teenager again? I wouldn't. You know, it's a hard time for, for many adolescents to navigate. And one of the great ways of helping them to navigate that is to show them that there's hope. We need to teach hope and awe and wonder and all these things. And yes, we also have to, you know, give them a realistic picture of the world so that they can really understand what the challenges are that we're facing. But we have to be really careful that we're not developing cynicism. And you know, mathematics, when it just becomes, it's just busy work, it's pointless, it's meaningless, that can help to develop cynicism, as can other things as well. Yeah, I'm going to unpack that uh, for a second here. I want to talk a little bit about that. The reality is that when you have this negative outlook, it's, it's because you can't see a way out. That's a lack of problem-solving skills. And young kids, they just don't have the ability to see their way through a, a complex problem. And, you know, society does a, a pretty poor job of understanding that you can't, you can't take something like climate change or a radical problem in the world and awaken or activate a seven or eight or nine-year-old child with that. I mean, they don't have the tools or the ability to come up with a solution. Even if you're trying to inspire them to do as such, I think instead you're you're going back to making things so hard that that soul crushing experience closes them. It's the reverse, right? Uh, that's what I love about what you do is in, in your approach, it's very problem solving oriented. It's very okay to make mistakes because that's just getting you closer to the, to the solution. Uh, as a computer programmer, of course I had to do a lot of math, but really, I always looked at myself as uh, developing puzzles. How do I make a puzzle? How do I fit those pieces together and ultimately come up with what I want? And, you know, as an engineer, you have end state thinking. Well, if you can't see a solution, you can never engage in end state thinking. And that's where cynicism comes in because they don't want it. They don't want, I don't want it to be my fault. It's not my fault. It's got to be the fault of this uh, esoteric, boogeyman of some sort. I think if we get back to teaching math and logic and in a beautiful and meaningful way, you're getting back to that point that you made. You want that instills hope, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's, I think so important, especially for the younger child and you know, this world that we live in, there's a lot of blame, you know, the world is this way and you know, here is who's to blame for this you know, you mentioned, you know, environment. There are cha big challenges facing the world. Is the world a worse place than it was 100 years ago, 200 years ago? I don't think so. I mean, that's a whole philosophical question in and of itself. Right. You know, are there, are, is the world more complicated now than it was 100 years ago, 200 years ago? Sure. Right. But, you know, we're mm -hmm. making progress and we have big challenges and there's bumps in the road and all of this. And it is important that we give a very realistic and hopeful message to our children growing up. Right. Oh, yeah. And so you just look at, you know, global warming, something like this. I mean, yeah, these are important challenges. Right. They're complicated challenges. You know, and, and again, this becomes philosophical. Do I feel that we as a human species on the earth can overcome these challenges? Absolutely. There are already many challenges that we have overcome. You know, the fact today that as I, you know, I live in Colorado and I like to go from the mountains down to the city, et cetera, and you come over this knoll 
as you come back from the mountains, and it used to be 35 years ago, every time you come over that knoll, you'd look and uh, the pollution on the horizon as you looked at the city, it was like this orange, horrid cloud. And you don't see yeah. that cloud very much anymore. I mean, there's one example of where we've made progress and we can teach hope. Yes, I'm not trying to say we don't have environmental challenges facing us, but I am trying to say that we have made progress and will continue to make progress. And it's such an important thing for the for the young child. And we have to think of this. When is the right time to for them to be res, wrestling with these kind of issues? It's not helpful for a young child to be told that, you know, that the environmental situation is so bad that you're doomed and you'll be lucky to live, you know, to 50 years old. It's only a slight exaggeration to what these kids are actually told, right? And right. How, how can a young child deal with that? Only one way really is to completely block it out. You know, put up the barrier, put up the walls. And in the long run, it, it doesn't help in any way, shape or form. It doesn't actually make them uh, and, and a, that's not going to help them to develop into adult that cares about the environmental issues facing the world. It just turns them off. Yeah. And so we need to find ways to to bring it in the right way in the right time. And yes, we need to encourage true problem solving. And what does that look like? Well, that's what real math is. Real math is when you look at a problem and and you look at it and you say, I have no idea what to do. I mean, just one that came to mind here. I'll, I'll just mention this is, you know, take the number 10. The number 10 has four factors. So one, two, five, and 10. Those numbers all divide evenly into 10. So the number 10 has four factors. Okay, so go ahead, solve this. Give me a number that has 13 factors. You know, I, I gave that example right now just because it's it was very quick for me to state. I think most people listening to this right now can wrap their head around what the question is. But most people will look at that and go, I have no idea how to solve that. I've never seen it before. I don't know of it. You can't, you're probably not trying to, you know, you're probably not going through thinking, oh, wait, there was a formula I learned in eighth grade. I'm trying to remember, what is that formula? Yet? No, there's no formula for that. You have to think your way through it. And that's true problem solving. And, you know, I remember thinking when I was in school, genuinely thinking when I was in high school, if my teacher ever gave me a problem in, on homework for which I was not told how to solve it, then that was like an illegal homework problem. Oh, it must have been my teacher didn't get to that part in his lecture today, right? Therefore, I have no idea how to do it. He didn't tell me how to do it. Therefore, yay, I don't have to do it. Yay, great, because that's not allowed. A teacher's not allowed to give a problem to a student that they haven't been told how to, how to solve. That's unfortunate because true mathematics, true mathematics is that sort of thing where you look at it and your first reaction is, okay, well, once you understand what the question is, first reaction should be, I have never seen this before. I have no idea what to do. And for many students today, they encounter that situation and they basically quit. They're like, I, I, yes. I don't have yes, the yes, tools yes. to deal with this. And what I want from my students is for them to look at that. And yeah, sure. Say that. Yep. I have no idea what to do. I've never seen this before. But then the second thought entering their head should be, and that's what mathematics is. And I've encountered this before and what the heck I might as well try. And I'm not sure if I'm going to be successful. Right? There's no guarantee that we're going to be successful. And I think that's healthy also, that in many cases in mathematics, you try to solve a problem, right? You make some progress at it, but maybe you don't come up with the right answer. Maybe you never have any idea what to do, but it still makes it more valuable when the teacher then perhaps guides the class through a little bit of the process of what that'll be. But this, you know, we, we sometimes are given this strange notion in our classrooms that if I were a good student, right? Then every problem I could possibly encounter, I would know how to solve. But the reality mm. is that, I mean, there's, there's another myth of math, right? If you're good at math, then it's easy, right? The reality is, is mathematicians, not, that's not what they do. Around. They don't sit around all day doing like easy things that they've done 50 times before, right? They're working on big problems that they still haven't figured out how to work on. I mean, there are, I mean, and I'm not, touting myself as you know, a world-class mathematician. I'm much more of a teacher for sure. But as a mathematician, there are problems that I've worked on that for 10 years it took me before I actually came to a solution. Now, that was awesome, 
right? And there are other problems in my head that I still haven't figured out the solution to. And that's part of what math is. So to, to give students a more realistic picture of mathematics, and as you mentioned, to give them true experiences of problem solving. What do you do when you encounter something that you don't know what to do? Well, you try and you try to figure it out and you think outside the box and you come up with creative, hopefully inspirational ideas about how to solve it. And, you know, sometimes they succeed, hopefully, sometimes they don't. And those those times when they can break through and solve it themselves, I mean, those are golden moments. And you try to create mm. those possibilities in the classroom. But for a student to look back at the end of the year and maybe even say, okay, there were you know, 50 times over the course of the year, maybe, that I was given a problem that I had no idea what to do with. And, you know, maybe 10 of them, I figured it out. And that was really cool. That's okay. It doesn't seem like a very good batting average, 10 out of 50, but those 10 times can really feed you and give you a real sense of, of the wonders of math and, and really help you to advance, you know, to that next level in your thinking. It can give you inspiration. Wow. I, I, that's a beautiful, uh, that's a beautiful breakdown. And I almost think of, I think of the parent in, the, in this equation. I mean, if you're dealing with young children, you're obviously dealing with their, the parents. And in many cases, these kids are struggling. You're, you're, you do an excellent job of explaining the struggle that a young mind goes through and some of the obstacles that they need to uh, bulwark, strengthen against and become better at. And as they become better, and their improvement, their confidence will increase. But in many ways, parents are at a loss as to, well, how do, how do I, how do I help my child? How, how do I, how do I make sure that my child, I mean, aside from a worksheet, is, they can't do the worksheet. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're not capable or that they won't do well. What kind of advice do you have for a parent looking at this and saying, how do I look at this realistically and, and what's my solution? Yeah, it's a good, a very good question. And, you know, I get this quite a bit where I'll be contacted, you know, by a parent and they'll say, oh, you know, it's terrible. My child is struggling with math. And, you you know, I'll hear that quite a bit. And my first question is, well, how old is your child? And, you know, sometimes you'll get, oh, first grade, second grade, something like that. And that just, right, right. you know, and, and I'm not blaming parents because I can understand that. You know, we live in a world where there's so much fear. There's so much fear in, in so many different levels. I mean, I, I spoke about how fear affects our education years and years before the pandemic, for instance. But, you know, there seems to be increasingly more fear. And part of that fear is, oh, no, if my child doesn't learn what they need to learn, math in particular, then, you know, they're not going to be successful in life. There's a lot of pressure. And so, you know, the first thing I say to parents with that question is, well, okay, grades one through four, it's really all about, it's, it's all about developing a sense of number. And how do you develop a sense of number you, you play? And so let's keep it playful and not worry about the procedural skills. Oftentimes, you know, they're doing long multiplication, long division. They're doing these skills-oriented stuff way too young of an age when it's not really appropriate for the child and it's not helpful. You know, so in those early years, you're just really trying to play with number and develop the sense of number that will serve them well. And then in fifth and sixth grade, okay, now we'll really focus more on uh, mastering these procedural skills. Many of those procedural skills were introduced in a playful way in third and fourth grade, but in fifth and sixth, we can do more with it. But, you know, and then of course, things become more skills oriented, more you know, I like to talk about procedural skills, which could be important, but it's not everything. We're led to believe the procedural skills are everything. And I just spoke about the importance of also engaging in problem solving and puzzles and developing mathematical thinking. But, you know, as as the years progress, there's more, it, it, it does become more serious, understandably, because that's where they're at developmentally. And then, so for parents that have children in those age, say middle school years, et cetera, um, then what I would say is, well, you know, first of all, struggle isn't bad. It isn't all bad. In fact, and I, I truly believe this, that the greatest success in math only comes, it always comes by working through struggle, the greatest successes. I mean, nobody is, you know, sitting there with their arms up in the air cheering and thinking, wow, I can't believe I did this. Nobody's saying that if it was something that was easy for them. 
right? Right. It's, it's something that came with struggle. That's an amazing thing. And, you know, it, it could be that a child is in tears because they're struggling and they're really trying and they're not, you know, they're not able to work. Tears aren't always bad. It shows that they care. Hmm. Really, tears can show that the child care, and that's good. It's apathy that the thing is that I'm most concerned about. And yes, it is concerning if a child only struggles and never works through their struggles to experience success. And that, again, is part of the art of teaching. You know, with, with me, you know, that's been my whole career is trying to find the right problems, the right puzzles at the right age for the right children so that it can just take them to that, that limit, right? Take them to that edge of, of, okay, this is something that I know as a teacher that they will be able to do it or a good chance that they will, but it's going to really challenge them and it's going to be struggle. I mean, when I give a good problem to a student or to a group of students, you know, I don't know if this makes sense, but I will be disappointed if they solve it super quickly. You know, I'm hoping it's going to be something that's going to be the right amount of, tr of struggle. And I'm hoping that over time they'll work through it and have that experience that, as I said, can lead to what is the greatest feeling of success. And as I mentioned earlier, it could be, you know, over the course of the year for them to look back and think, oh, these two or three oper these two or three experiences that I had, those were the best experiences I had because I didn't think I could do it. I worked through my frustration in the end. I worked through the struggles and I was able to do something I didn't think I could do. And that's magical. And that, again, that's part of the awe and wonder, and it also builds confidence, and it gives them a realistic picture of not only mathematics, but life. You know, life doesn't always come. There are life lessons that I hope my students can learn here, right? Because guess what? You know, we're not always given the formulas and the recipes and the instructions for everything. There are times in life where we have to figure things out ourselves. We have to problem solve, and I'm hoping through math that they learn perseverance, they learn how to work through struggles. These are great life lessons, which are ultimately the most important thing that I think my students are learning in the classroom. Well, let me tell you, that is a wonderful segue to what I was thinking about here. You, you do a really, really great job of building a well-rounded student. You, you care about that. There's a, there's a thoughtfulness that is behind these these stories that you're telling and you're definitely looking to develop a whole person. You want, you want these skills to be translated and it doesn't matter if they're doing science the next time, or they're doing maybe more liberal art, whether it's music or maybe they're writing, maybe they're learning to read all of these things build upon themselves uh, because they push at the right level at the right time and you get the right amount of success. And all, you know, that's, that's a little bit of a, you know, you're trying to hit a trifecta. It's a little bit of a, you know, uh, it's a power shot. You're trying to shoot an arrow through a keyhole. But I do believe, and I say this from personal opinion, because I've got daughters that have gone through your academy and your, your system, that when it works, it works at a very high degree. They are extremely inspired, extremely ready and prepared to take on more and more complexity, both in life and in school. So can you tell me a little bit about how, how, how did you strike gold with this? Because obviously you wrote this, this book, this wonderful book, Making Math Meaningful. And now you have this academy, which I imagine has a, a, a way of teaching and a way of, uh, integrating the student into the lessons. Can you tell us just very briefly how it works? I mean, again, a few different questions there. How did I come about it? And that was, you know, kind of a lifelong process, to be honest. Um, and, and part of this was, you know, in the beginning, it was an interesting experience to be told by this school, this first Waldorf school that I taught at, that we don't use textbooks. You know, I don't blame the the mathematical crisis that our society is in right now. I don't blame it on the teachers. I, I, I do, if I'm going to place blame anywhere, if I need to do so, I'm not convinced that's always constructive, but uh, I, I would say it's in, with these large textbook manufacturers that these 
textbooks that most all students are using, you know, tend to not be inspirational for the students. It, it tends to be more of the grind. Um, but so when I first came to this Waldorf school and I said, you know, we're not using textbooks. You need to create the material that you bring, bring that you bring into the classroom yourself. That was certainly a huge challenge for me. And yet I'm the kind of person that really enjoys doing that. I enjoy that creative process of, of, and, and I enjoyed it more and more the more I did it. So every night I would go home and think, what is going to be best for these students? And slowly over time, I developed a curriculum and that curriculum is reflected in my making math meaningful workbooks and teachers source books and all of that. You know, so I share that with other people that they could use. Um, but I mean, partly this comes and, you know, perhaps it was, you know, sort of my destiny to be in this place in Colorado that's in, in some ways kind of the Wild West and you can do whatever you want. <laughs> Right. And, and, you know, so I'm in a place that has a lot of freedom, honestly, and freedom in many, many different ways. But one of those ways as a teacher is I had the freedom without much pressure of saying what I had to teach. And we didn't have any standardized testing. And so I could create this curriculum essentially for what evolved into a grades one through 12 curriculum that I Ooh. felt would prepare them you know, not only for mathematics that they might encounter in the future, not only for the university that they might go to, but prepare them for life as well and to give them a sense of what mathematics really is as a human experience. So I was given that freedom to do that without the pressures that, of course, we find most everywhere in the world. You know, government uh, exams, uh, college entrance tests, all of these sort of things that really put a lot of pressure on the material. You have to get through all these topics and, you know, there's all this pressure that's put on the teachers and that pressure ultimately is, is then transferred onto the students as well. And so I didn't have that. And so I think that opened up the door for really developing this curriculum. So that's partly the answer, you know, the first answer to the hmm. question that you asked. Um, and then, you know, how does this how does this really work and how does it manifest in the academy? I, I would say this, and this was, it, it's, you know, I like to tell stories uh, quite a bit. And, you know, one of the stories I like to tell is uh, I had decided it was time for me to, to um, focus on what I call my math missionary work, you know, up until, um, up until that point in my life, I guess I was 53 years old up until that point I had been, teaching full-time at my school. And then during my vacations, I would go and offer workshops for teachers. And in the summer, I was working at a teacher training institute to help train teachers and was writing my books and doing all this work. And I realized it was it was a little too much and I needed to just, just focus on that other stuff. So I left my school of where I taught for more than 20 years, Shining Mountain Waldorf School in Boulder, Colorado, which uh, I, I certainly loved my experience there, but it was time for me to kind of venture out on my own and, and so I traveled quite a bit for two years and then uh, my timing was impeccable because I finished my travel just before the onset of the pandemic. And, and also at that point, I had a group of homeschool parents approach me and say, Jamie, we love what you're doing here, but we, we really can't really bring it the way that we know it ought to be brought uh, in our homeschool uh, environment in our own homeschool classes and we need some help. Can you teach some homeschool classes? And that's where it began uh, with oh. the academy. And so this was six month, months before COVID and that's September of uh, 2019. And so I started with a small group and, and we did this and I wasn't very optimistic about it. I thought, how is this going to work? And, you know, a lot of people have prejudice against online learning, especially now after the pandemic, which I totally understand because it, the way that yeah. it was done was not effective. And it was, you know, there were those reasons and then people were forced to do it against their will and so on and so forth. But, you know, I also had prejudices against online learning, I have to say, but I, I went forward and I did it and we had these Zoom meetings with the students and I did recorded lectures and I created the whole structure which still exists now four years later wow and I, there were there was something that really happened that was completely unexpected and that is i had this inspiration or insight that for this to work it has to be more than just watching recorded lectures 
if all students are going to be doing is watching a screen, a recorded version of myself, give lectures, no matter how, how good those lectures were, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be good. Because if it was just that and then slogging through, you know, problems out of my own workbooks, there needed to be a human component to it. They needed to be connecting with other human beings. Mm -hmm. And so what we did is we uh, created this idea that twice a week, as much time that they would be watching me in a recorded lecture, they would be meeting with other students in these what I call group meetings, and they would be doing real math. And what I mean again by real math is real problem solving, puzzles, figuring out things, discovering things together with others. And this has been, this is what I think makes my program most unique. Um, there are other online, certainly online learning systems out there that involve recorded lectures and, you know, working through problems in a workbook or whatever. But for this, for our students to meet together in groups twice a week and, and to really do real math and struggle through working on problems that they don't know how to do has been really, really helpful. And, and so for years before this, I had always, you know, talked to teachers about the importance of group work and working on puzzles and all that. But it was actually the academy that forced me for the first time in my career to practice what I preach and actually give them a significant amount of time, a lot of time to be doing the real math and, and the discovery and the problem solving and all of that. And so that's where this is. And that's why I can say, and it sounds like an outrageous statement. I'm not just trying to sell anybody, but it's true. This has been the most successful teaching of my career. It's not that I wasn't successful beforehand when I was teaching in person, but, but I've, this has forced me to do more real problem solving, real math than I had ever done before. More group work, more of this. And that has made all the difference in the world, I'd say. Um, and, and that's what makes it, again, this is what makes it meaningful. This is what makes it inspirational to the students is when they're given that opportunity and they're able to do things that they didn't think that they could possibly do. That to me is real success. Wow. That's a great story. One of many, by the way, but I find it interesting that the rest of the narrative surrounding COVID is how far behind children have gotten. They've gotten so far behind. They're behind in reading. They're behind in math. They're behind. We're still catching up. We don't know the fallout. And yet here's a small group that you worked with and nobody fell behind. Dare I say they moved ahead. And I can tell you that this is 100% uh, something I lived through, you know, my daughter, Juliet, was in middle school. Uh, she took your classes through some Waldorf school that we had here locally in, in uh, Florida. But when middle school came around, my wife and I became these parents and said, well, why don't, we, why don't we homeschool Juliet? And she came into it not the most confident regarding mathematics. And I can say that all of these stories that you've told have been echoed in, in her hard work, her ability to follow along with your, your course study, the group work, all of that. And I'll top it off with one last story that I think will be a little bit inspirational to some other folks. Well, here in Florida, the, the kids have to take an EOC in eighth grade, which is a standardized test that says, hey, our, where do we place you in high school for math? And uh, Juliet was very nervous about being able to pass this test. Yeah, quite understandably. Uh, yeah, it was, it's a lot of pressure. And to tell you the truth, it wasn't like we prepared her for the test. All we prepared her to do was think and the things that the, your academy brought, the ideas, the problem solving. And she goes into this classroom. There's you know probably 50 kids from all over that are taking the test, including her now homeschool. And they have two hours to complete this exam. Well. Two hours go by, everyone puts their pencils down. The teacher says, uh, does anyone need more time? And you know, all the hands go up. And she notices that Juliet's hand didn't go up. And she goes, well, do you need more time? And she goes, no, I'm finished. And she was the only one who actually finished the exam in two hours. And I can happily report she received her score a few days ago and she scored uh, a five, which is the highest you can score in this standardized test. And all of this coming from a child that uh, was not part of the school system at all, 
just learn mathematics through your academy. And so as a parent, I thank you for doing that. But more importantly, I think that the real person that benefited here was Juliet. And isn't that what we want from our kids to benefit Absolutely. from their learning environment? Absolutely. And I really appreciate that story. Um, I, I really do appreciate you sharing that because, you know, that's why I teach. Right. It, and again, <laughs> you know, it's, you know, I've taught more than my share of really brilliant, gifted students in my, in my career. Um, but it's the ones who, you know, kind of made something of a breakthrough that it wasn't, it wasn't a shoe and it wasn't a given that they were going to be brilliant and successful no matter what. It's the ones that I feel like at least made a small difference in helping to make them to change their, their relationship to mathematics and, and to increase their confidence because that confidence goes a long way beyond the mathematics oh, yeah. classroom. That can make a huge difference in someone's life. I did want to tag on to one other thing that you said there, and, and this is okay. a good question. You, you were saying how it seems in today's world, everyone is behind. It's, it's a bizarre thing, isn't it? I mean, of course, it, it conjures up this race of uh, this, it conjures up this image of a race. And so the we're treadmill. all in this foot race, right? And it's like, you know, you've got 2000 people in this race and there's one person that's in the front and everyone else is behind. I mean, it's just, it's bizarre thinking, to be honest. And it's certainly not helpful thinking, but there, it is true. There are many students who have, we'll just say, weaknesses in their skills. They're lacking confidence. You know, all these things that come along with that awful label of being behind, right? And and these can be legitimate concerns for parents. You know, what do I do with my child? My child hates math. You know, they, they don't have the skills that I would think that they need to have at this point. What do I do? And it's an, it's a curious thing. Because in many cases, we have these unconscious assumptions in the back of our head. And the unconscious assumption is, well, if a child is, is weak with their skills, what we need to do is hammer them with a lot more skills work. They need more homework, not less. And the reason why I say this, and you can kind of tell by my choice of words there, is that it often isn't, it isn't helpful. I mean, it may be for a rare student. Okay, just getting an extra hour of homework on, you know, fractions every night is going to somehow have a positive effect. But for most students, it just makes them hate math more. And it's not actually going to do it. So I say, and this is, you know, perhaps a little bit radical, to, to get a child like that that's in that situation, who has low confidence, who hates math, who has weak skills, et cetera, to turn the boat around. And by the way, it's totally doable to turn that boat around and say sixth oh, yeah. or seventh grade, sixth or oh, seventh yeah. grade is an ideal time to do that. Trying to turn that boat around in ninth and 10th grade is a lot harder. It's a lot harder. Yep. I won't say yep. it's hopeless, yep. but it's, it, you got to try to do it in sixth and seventh grade for sure. And so to turn that around, what do you do? Well, you engage them with interesting math, right? In a way you ignore the holes and, and you, and you express to them, you know what? I think you, I know you don't have confidence. I know you can't, you don't think that you can deal with fractions and long division, all this. That may or may not be true, but I have confidence in you. I think that you can actually do math and somewhere in you is somebody who actually can be good at math. I'm going to give you a problem now that's really interesting. And so we find the right wow. level of, again, puzzles and problem solving experiences and to give them that experience where suddenly they're like, they can start to see the on wonder of mathematics. And again, the art of teaching is the right problem. You don't want to give them something that's so incredibly difficult. They have no chance at it, but we give them the right kind of interesting, engaging problem where suddenly they can see perhaps subconsciously, they can start to think, Oh, right. actually I'm able to do this. Oh, actually that's interesting. I'm enjoying this. And once you start to turn around their attitude and their relationship to mathematics, then at some point later, we can go back and say, well, remember that stuff with fractions that you had troubles with? Okay, well, now let's work a little bit on that. Now they have a different relationship to mathematics and a different desire to actually work on that. But we don't start with pummeling them with more skills. It, off, it usually does not work. Well, 100%. You, 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 if you're going to do something dry, you just have no opportunity to, to get that inspiration underneath as leverage. It's that leverage, inspiration, their desire to want to learn more must come 
from success, but success doesn't find itself in one area. There are many different ways to leverage that. And I think that your, your books, the way that you approach things, I honestly think that every single child going from fourth, fifth into, into middle school would benefit from having this taught to them. There's no limit to it. I don't care if it's homeschool. It doesn't matter if it's Waldorf. It doesn't matter if there's another sort of modality that people want to say, public, private school, making math meaningful. It really does have its place in today's educational environment. Yeah, and my hope is that, you know, we can, and I know there are good math teachers out there that know a lot of what we're talking about here. They know it, but they're caught in a system that's really not giving them the freedom to practice what they know. And that's where it's hard. And again, I think a lot of it is these textbooks. You know, the textbooks tend to be really dry. But, you know, just let me be clear here. I'm not arguing that that skills aren't important. So, yes, math skills are important. It's, you know, for anybody, we want students to be able to go off to university and to be able to thrive and be successful in a university-level math course. And you're not going to be able to do that if you can't speak the language, right? If you don't have the basic of course, fund- of course. if you don't have the basic fundamental skills. But what I am saying is there's something more important than skills, and that is your ability to think mathematically, problem solve, and all of that. And most of all, the most important thing is what I spoke about moment ago is really having that healthy relationship to mathematics you know to have the interest to have the enthusiasm for learning that's going to take you a long way not only in your math courses but it'll take you a long way in life if you have a passion and interest in all that you do well that's a beautiful stopping point for us i'll tell you what i've enjoyed this conversation i hope that you have too thank you it's really yeah it's a there's many things I think that we can still talk about. Maybe we'll do this again. Let's do it again. Sounds we'll talk good. a little bit broadly. But uh, Jamie York, I want to thank you very much for taking the time today. And uh, I look forward to the next time we get a chance. Well, to thank talk. you, Mark. Thank you. And um, I'm, I'm so pleased to, that I was able to be here and have the conversation with you. Thank you. A- absolutely. Take care.